Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. For 16 years, Jamie Dimon has reigned atop the J.P. Morgan Chase organization, building it into a finance colossus. Now Dimon is speaking out about the obligations of business, not just to shareholders, but to all its stakeholders and the broader community. I sat down with him virtually, of course, at the Institute of Politics last week to talk about this, the state of the economy, and his reflections on the country, as well as his own journey, the triumphs, setbacks, controversies, and a recent brush with death. Here's that conversation. Jamie Diamond, welcome. Uh, Welcome to the Axe Files, but also uh, welcome back to Chicago. Um, You know, you don't have to be a linguist to see that you are a New Yorker. Uh, but uh, you spent some time out here uh, in the early 2000s. How did how did a New Yorker fare out here in Chicago? Yeah, so welcome, everybody. Sorry we can't do this in person, but we'll, we'll try to do it next year. I moved out there in the year 2000 because I took over Bank One, which is there. I moved my whole family. I absolutely love Chicago. I think it's even a better place, nicer place to live than New York. I love the restaurants, I love being on the lake and, and all things like that. It's very close to the office. And uh, but I do remember they were like, you know, a New Yorker is kind of worried about me. The Chicagoans were worried about me. <laughs> and they'd always ask me, like, you're going to go back to New York. You go back to New York. I said, if I die here and they send my ashes back to New York, they would say, see, we told you we were right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love Chicago. And my, I still have a brother there. And so uh, I'm hopefully going to head out there shortly to start road trips again. We're at the Institute of Politics. You, you had a, a brush with greatness uh, as a student. Uh, with the University of Chicago, even though you were at uh, a lesser institution, we'll say. Yeah, yeah. My and my brother got his PhD in physics there, and so I, which I love physics. I went out to visit him at the Fermi Labs, and so I've been yeah. out there obviously many times. And and I did apply the uh, Chicago Business School and uh, learned a little bit of math there. So, but uh, you, you said you had an interaction with uh, the the legendary uh, Milton Friedman when you were a student. Yeah. It's an unbelievable story. So I read in college the his book Capitalism and Freedom, which is still a great read, by the way. And I'd written a, like a critique of it, uh, and on a lark I sent it to him. And you know, a couple of weeks later, a month later, I got back a handwritten like eight page note <laughs> critique of my of my critique, basically saying, "Kid, you you, you were okay, but you missed some major points." But uh, but it's amazing that a teacher would take that time and effort to do something like that. Yeah. You just, uh, speaking of teaching, you just uh, released your annual uh, letter to your 100 million shareholders uh, of, of the bank. But it was also, uh, in many ways, a letter to the country as a whole. And it was pretty remarkable for its emphasis on social and economic uh, policy and prescriptions, not just uh, on the, the health of your own 
uh, institution. I, I want to talk about all that. Uh, but before we do, I just want to give people a sense of your own uh, uh, journey. You, you, you are not, you know, you hear these stories about the kid who goes to college and was an art major and took a economics course or a finance course and said, wow, this is what I want to do. You're not one of those stories. You were sort of born into this, weren't you? A little bit. I grew up in Jackson Heights, Queens, and my dad was a stockbroker. So, so my grandparents were all immigrants, didn't finish high school, but my dad became a stockbroker. My mother loved psychology. She went back to college when I went back to college. But I was always kind of interested in business. So my brothers, one's an educator, one's a physicist. I was the one who was kind of more interested in what my dad was doing and what's going on. And, and, and your like, grandfather, too. Wasn't your grandfather who, who was an immigrant? My grandfather eventually, after washing dishes, he eventually became a VP of a very small bank, and then a stockbroker at a company called Shearson Hamill. So, yeah. And I, so I, when I was a kid, I used to read about stocks and bonds, and I read Graham and Dodds, that big, thick one. I read that in high school. I was, an, I was a bit of a nerd. You know, I was always <laughs> trying to learn stuff like that. In college, I majored in economics and psychology. I was, I was interested in both. And you went to Harvard Business School and you excelled there and you were kind of a prodigy. Uh, you went to American Express and you were uh, became a kind of a, a right hand person. A, a, uh, you were like Alexander Hamilton to uh, George Washington with Sandy Weil, who was a kind of a legend uh, in finance. And you guys had a, uh, a long journey together building what became Citicorp. I really only ever had one job, and then that lasted for 12 or 15 years. It started as commercial credit, but that company bought Primerica, Smith Barney, Etna's Property Casualty, Travelers, Solomon Brothers, and then merged with City. And then I got fired. And yeah. so, but, but, so I'm, I'm like a one person, you know, <laughs> one co company person. So then I started again at Bank One and merged with JP Morgan. So that was basically my effective two job. That was and that that was a hell of a run. I mean, the stock did well, the company did well. I learned a lot. Of course, I had a falling out, uh, more like uh, Hamilton with. Uh, <laughs> yes, with George Washington. Yes. Yeah, with Hamilton and Burr. Yeah. <laughs> when uh, I was reading your letter, you wrote, "It's good to have a few mavericks who are not afraid to shake things up. The ones who challenge authority or convention often get far more done than the ones who go along to get along." Uh, and I was thinking about you and your your youth in this business and your uh, your collaboration with Wild, you, you showed up at a, uh, because you were known for being that guy. You were known for being brash and for challenging people, including him. And you showed up for a weekend retreat uh, of management. And as you point out, you were fired. How does that, how, how did that impact on you? I, there may be lessons that are worth uh, drawing from your experience and how did it change you? That when I when I graduated Harvard Business School, a lot of my friends said, "Whatever you do, don't go to corporate America because you won't survive." And corporate America, this is 1982, was very staid, and so you know it changed a lot after that. It was a lot less staid, and and so we did great over the time. He and I had a falling out over a bunch of issues, and I was less I was very detailed and oriented and factual based, and I didn't like BS and bullshit and bureaucracy, which he didn't like either. He just didn't like some of the things I was doing at the point, and so I didn't. The, our relationship had been bad for years. I never expected it end that way. Looking back, I should have known. I mean, how long can you not have a good relationship with your CEO and stuff like that? So, so I was surprised. But I tell people when I got fired, you know, I it was like it was my not my self esteem, not my self worth was involved in that. It was my net worth. I was fine. I went to you know events after that and saw people. Some people treated me like I had uh, 
I got a disease. I walked in a room and they would run as far as they can. That the night I got fired, 40 people came to my apartment to celebrate me from the company. And they did, but they did, they said, please don't tell Sandy because he'll be really pissed off if they find out. And so, uh, so you, you, you learn a lot. Been a while. I mean, let it go for crying out loud. It's, exactly. We're talking 33 years. It was like being at your own wake. Hey, he's a pretty good guy. <laughs> We're going to miss you, Jamie. Did you reflect on that in any way? And did it change you in yeah. any way? A little bit. So about a year later, I called him. He did not call me. Uh, and I said, Sandy, it's time we kind of break bread or something like that. I wanted to have a private meeting. He said, I'll meet at the Four Seasons at the restaurant in New York for lunch. So we meet there. And of course, it's now it's in the newspaper. But and I walked in. I said, Sandy, look, I'm not here to do it. I want to with the past for two minutes. I said, I basically think, you know, I'm, I think what you did was wrong and bad for the company. But I made mistakes. And here's the mistakes I made. And he basically said, thank you for confessing to that. And, and we had a very nice lunch. And But you do. You know, you, I, you, I made decisions out of anger. I didn't deal with certain issues directly. Uh, you know, when things are going off track, you step back and not let yourself get jazzed up, but actually think about what's the problem, what's the right thing to do. You know, list the help of some people can help you or something like that. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, you, you will make mistakes. And the, the biggest thing, whenever you, everyone gets knocked down, you know, you feel sorry for yourself is do you learn from it? Do you look at what you did wrong? And I try to look at what I did wrong, not just always pointing the finger at somebody else. Vernon Jordan, who I know you know really well. Yes, yes. Vernon Jordan, one of the great men of all time, just you know, who was away. a very good friend. His wife was on the board of travelers in, at the time. You know, he came to see me and said, you know, revenge is a terrible thing because you spend your life worrying about the other people. You've done great stuff. You're respected. Think about the future and, uh, which, of course, is always great advice. You spent 16 months thinking about what you wanted to do next, and then you ended up here. What? And that wasn't an obvious choice, was it, to come uh, to Bank One? Bank One wasn't the strongest of institutions at the time? No, you know, I, I uh, first of all, I thought about everything, teaching, writing, starting my own little merchant bank, you know, just being a small little investment shop. But I, and, and I was offered a job, I was offered a job at Home Depot. I loved Home Depot. I loved the people, the culture, the character. Ken Langone still gets, you know, I would have gotten you, I should have gotten you. But I spent my whole life in financial services. It's like playing golf all your whole life, and then they want to go play tennis. I, yeah. I didn't know merchants. I didn't know walking through the store or manufacturing and things like that. And, I, and you thought about it. And I, so I wanted to run something. And you think about it, how many big financial companies are there? You know, how many, like 20. How many mm -hmm. change the CEO over a couple-year period? Five. How many go outside? One. So, yeah, it was a troubled company. But, you know, I bought stock. I latched my legs to it. I said, I'm going to make this as great a cup as I can and never look back. And that's just the way I kind of am. And, uh, uh, and then moving to Chicago, but it was great. It, it was an experience for my family. You meet a lot of new friends, you meet a lot of people, the, the new kids in school. So you see them adjusting to that, which is hard for, they were like 16, 14, and 12. And, uh, uh, and we still have tons of friends in Chicago. And, and you uh, negotiated a merger uh, and that, that became J.P. Morgan Chase. And you took over uh, that large entity when in around 2005, is that right? Yeah, it was the beginning of 2005, yeah. Yeah, so like you had two years and then the financial industry yeah. virtually collapses. Yeah. Uh, so you're faced with crisis right away. You, you got a credit at, uh, for navigating part of that. You didn't get deeply enmeshed in these uh in the syndication of subprime mortgages, but um, 
but tell me, I know what it felt like when I was working for President Obama, when we got the briefing be, right before he took office on where things stood. And we were told, look, financial system is locked up and could collapse. Right. Uh, and there could be a second Great Depression. What did it feel like where you were sitting? So I met with uh, President-elect Obama before, uh, like four months before I told him how bad it was going to get. You may, you may actually have been there. And I was with Warren Buffett in a hotel in D.C. or something. And uh, so, you know, the company, I, mean, I was basically running the company since the day the merger happened. And I also was very adamant about credit, risk, controls. You know, so you're right. We didn't have some of those problems. We inherited, we bought Wamu and Bear Stearns. We, and, you know, unfortunately, added more than we started with. And uh, but my, you know, my first reaction, Jake Moore is always fine. And my first reaction is you help, you know, when something goes wrong, you help your country. I, I'm still a patriot way before I'm the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. So uh, I want to do everything we can to help. So I had been in constant contact with Tim Geithner when he was New York Fed. Uh, I was in constant contact with Hank Paulson when he was Secretary of Treasury. And so uh, that was my first thing, just help as much as you can. Obviously, the financial industry made flaws you know, and was somewhat to be blamed for the terrible crisis that happened in the country. And uh, but that was my always my goal, you know, just to do the best you can. And you, know. you, you said you say somewhat to blame. You know, there was obviously the devastation was was great uh, from the Great Depression, but um, there's a tremendous amount of anger toward the financial industry. Justifiable? Some, some of it, yeah. You know, I remember Rahm Emanuel saying, you know, no, there's no Old Testament justice done. And he's, he's absolutely right. And then if you look at what happened, the American public should blame the elite. But who else there is to blame? You know, so the financial system, they, they blame the government, but they blame leadership in general. And uh, what's unfair is that everyone was equally blamed. Not all people are bums, not all people are crooks, not all people did a terrible job. But absolutely, they should have blamed the banks. And, you know, the banks and, and the government, you know, the government, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they were part of that whole mortgage crisis that ended up taking place. And no one did it deliberately. But I, but I do completely understand the anger. I understood at the time. I mean, I went home every night thinking, my God, we helped, you know, we, we the industry, helped make a terrible thing there. But I, again, my, but my goal was always the same thing. Do the right thing going forward. And, you know, the anger isn't policy. and It doesn't always work. I always understood what it was. So I was. I spoke to Rahm all the time back then and Secretary Guyton when he became Secretary of Treasury. And uh, so we, we were trying to be helpful, knowing that we were going to be blamed anyway. Part of what pissed people off so much was um, news of all these bonuses. And that was a very lively debate within the uh, administration itself, yeah. uh, because, there, you know, there were people at these institutions uh, who were uh, reaping bonuses, even as the government was stepping in to save their institutions, big ones, uh, you could see where the, the, the optics of that would be terrible. So David, you might know that I was probably one of the only CEOs. My board was going to give me a bonus in the 09. I said, absolutely not. So mine was zero. And I thought when some of these companies, what they paid was friggin' outrageous. For the exactly you said, at least the senior, the most senior people. I mean, we have a lot of people work at the company, I think, you know, worked hard and did their job well and stuff like that. And I think it made I think it made it far worse. And you know, I don't know at the time. I remember talking to uh, uh, Secretary Geithner about it. You know, I would have said, "We'll do X for you, but you're not paying these people." Yeah. And I mean, I think it might have been done differently. I know in hindsight, I wish that I wish there had been more Old Testament justice because the public would have been felt better if the people who were really bad 
were allowed to fail. And some did, by the way, and they lost all their money and stuff like that. But, but there probably just wasn't enough of it. And so uh, I completely agree. That was a, a constant debate within within yep. the White House as to how, how to, because you know, on the one hand, there's you're trying to keep the system afloat. On the other hand, uh, there is the desire for, a justifiable desire for, as Ram said, Old Testament justice. You had a good relationship uh, with President Obama, but uh, probably, and tell me if I'm wrong, strained a little when the debate over Dodd-Frank and financial re- regulation uh, came up. Is that fair? You, you you were known as a friend of Obama. You must have taken a lot of crap from some of your uh, peers. I helped him become Senate. I helped him become president. Uh, and, I, and I have an enormous amount of uh, respect for President Obama. I wasn't blaming President Obama for Dodd-Frank. And I, if you look at that, Dodd-Frank is very complicated. I, for advice, but they got to look at each piece. I supported more capital, more liquidity, resolution, stress testing. We already did some of that. I thought that was all reasonable stuff. The thing I complained most about Dodd-Frank was the Senate, the, amend- the amendments from the senators. I didn't think it was called an amendment, you know, the, this amendment. That, they had nothing to do with the crisis. So I wasn't mad at the president for that, though. I mean, he can't write the legislation that goes through Congress. And, of course, Congress, you know, was going to take his pound of flesh, and I understood that, too. So that, that, that didn't have anything to do with my relationship with President Obama. I met him many times then in the Oval Office and for lunch or dinner, and was, I thought we always had a good relationship. The reason I, I raise it is that you you do, while you talk about some elements of the plan or you, you refer to elements of the plan that you think had unintended effects and so on, you you acknowledge in your letter that you just wrote that that the banks are more secure today because of some of the changes that were made back then. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no question that the banking system was part of the solution this time and none of these folks they're going to go bankrupt and that uh which i think is a good thing so like i said i supported a lot of it you write me what i wrote back then i supported more we needed more regulation we needed transparency we needed less of these off balance sheet vehicles we needed less of all these various things so i try to be helpful as that stuff has been written i spoke all the time to uh, uh senator dodd and congressman frank all the time what, what, what's your feeling now? Uh, um, I, I know that uh, a lot has been made of some of the regulatory appointments that President Biden has made, and a lot of them are, uh, are, are associates, protégés, collaborators with uh, Senator Warren, who, who uh, you know, is not a favored figure uh, on Wall Street. And in fairness, Wall Street's not a favored institution with her. Um, do you have apprehension about uh, the appointments that he's made? Not really. You know, even Senator Warren, I always went to see her too. And I always said, if you've got legitimate complaints at, at the time about credit cards, t- tell us. And, you know, if we change the rules, we'll change them and stuff like that. So, look, they're going to, and I know a lot of people, I obviously know uh, Secretary of Treasury uh, Johnny Yellen, I have tremendous respect for. Uh, I don't know all the people there, but I expect them to come do their jobs. And, uh, you know, some will be tougher on banks and consumer protection. And that's fine. That's their job. And if we're doing something wrong, they should fix it. So I'm not really worried about it. I think the world, I mean, there are a lot of other real concerns they should have too, which have nothing to do with banks. Mm-hmm. You know, if you talk about payment for order flow, high frequency trading, you know, the legal, the regulatory tax reporting status of crypto. I mean, I can go on and yeah. on and on about the future, uh, the data, data, data use, and data privacy. So, but I've, my, David, I've always been the same, which is, whoever on those jobs, I try to work with them. And yes, some of them are going to be much tougher than us than others. But again, when I wake up, I have to serve my customer. 
I take care of my employees. I take care of my community. I'll deal with, I have to deal with the regulators. And at the end of the day, they're the boss. So I deal with regulators. I don't tell them, I don't go and yell and scream. I basically say, look, you're the boss. We're going to do what you want. Explain it to us. Let us, if we have, if we have a disagreement for whatever reason, you know, we'll, we'll explain it back to you. But at the end of the day, you're going to decide. We're going to move on. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let's so let's talk about the uh, the the letter that you wrote, your sixty six page uh, letter. Um, the uh, you had a lot to say, man. The um, uh, and I think that you know the headline was uh, that that uh, most people gleaned from it was um, that you're bullish on the near term economy. But it was kind of a best of times and if not worst of times, most challenging of times letter. But let's deal with the the the, the headline. Uh, first, you you you're, you feel the short term for the economy is going to be very, very strong. Yeah, and separate the economy from the market. But the but the economy, unlike when you guys went to the great, we all went to the great recession. The consumer is in terrible shape. The financial system and the government financial everything was over leveraged. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, hedge funds, some of the investment banks. Not so much J.P. Morgan, by the way, because we were very conservative. And companies were weren't in great shape. And then we went to the Great Recession. Uh, this thing is completely different. The consumer, on average, remember the down. I think is it. I think the folks at the bottom, twenty three percent, are really struggling. Okay, so I'm not. I want to be very respectful of that. But the consumer today has a tremendous amount of money, mostly from stimulus and unemployment checks, et cetera. Uh, their balance sheet's in very good shape. Their confidence levels are going up. And that was all before, and I'm talking about $2 trillion more than they had right before the pandemic. Just cash and checkings and stuff in their savings account. Their home prices are up. Uh, if they own equities, the stock prices are up. The business segment's in very good shape. Uh, uh, I think there's going to be a little bit of a euphoria coming out of the pandemic. And you have all this pent-up demand. And you've got stimulus, the, the, the additional $1.9 trillion, You have something coming in infrastructure. And that will definitely, fuel, in my view, fuel a very strong economy for years. You know, it could be, I'm hoping, I mean, I hope it's a very good economy and that everyone benefits and that we target with, with deep recognition, we should target the problems we have in society. They are deep. They need to be fixed because, you know, we, we, we could do a lot of things, but we don't fix that. We shame on us. We don't use this opportunity to, to do some of that. Yeah. I want to talk about that in a minute. Uh, I just, on, on the, the issue of the economy, uh, the near-term economy, you know, Larry Summers, who I work closely with in the White House and who you know very well, has said he has a concern about overheating of the economy uh, that could lead to to you know high inflation and interest rates. He uh, tell me uh, why he's wrong. Well, I'm not completely sure he's wrong, and you know the way again for all the students there. I always when I look at stuff, I always look at what are the probabilities, the possibilities, how the, what's going to make that sort out. What are you going to do so you're prepared? Very hard to predict the future, but the deficit spending for two years. 2020 and 2020 is going to be 30% of GDP. The last time that ever happened was back in the great, in the war, World War II. And QE is also very large. Like I said, the circumstances are- Quantitative easing, yeah, by the, by the Fed. By the Fed is fairly large. The inflation we had in the 60s and 70s, we had 4% deficits. And in the Great Recession, we had, we ran deficits, but still half the size, not even half the size we're doing today. So 
that's going to fuel a lot of growth. The question you have is, what's the starting? So it, it will push inflation up. And I talk about a Goldilocks scenario where, yes. which I think is possible, which is inflation will go up, but you know, in a measured way, and you know, the Fed thinks it'll be kind of temporary. You know, but if the ten-year bond goes up, you know, say one point six five percent, but three percent, and that all takes place over years, and short rates go up from zero to two percent, we'll be fine. The booming economy will actually dwarf any unsettlement from bond prices going up, stuff like that. The risk is, which Larry is pointing out, is that you know that there's stimulus taking place in the latter part of 2022, in the middle of a boom, which can cause the overheating part. And you know, so if you have that, could you have inflation hitting 2.7 percent, 3 percent, 3.3 percent, bonds going to 4 percent or 5 percent? The Fed have to act sooner than later. It's possible. And so I'm not predicting it, but I do think it's possible. And you know, the Fed. Look, I think they're very smart people. If they see that, they can act early and try to, you know, try to, you know, underheat the economy so you don't have too much inflation. That will surprise people, but it's but they, they have tools to try to deal with it. But you know, I've grown up. It's not always the Fed isn't always proactive. Sometimes they have to be reactive. Let's go deeper into your letter. What what was so interesting to me is that it could have been written by a candidate for president, and I'm I'm not going to lead you down that road. I'm not asking you <laughs> that question, but um, it does speak to your vision of what the role of corporations and of leaders of corporations are uh, at this in this time uh, in our history. And you know, I'm reminded of the statement that you helped engineer at the business roundtable when you were leading that a couple of years ago, and you said that corporations had an uh, obligation to manage with mind not just toward shareholders but stakeholders and the broader community. Talk a little bit about that, because that is all over this letter. So let me do the big picture first. We had COVID, the murder of George Floyd, China coming up, President Biden speaks about competitiveness. And if you look at America and you look at all the things that have taken place, these things just highlighted a lot of our own flaws that already existed, which have been hurting all Americans, but particularly low paid. We didn't build proper infrastructure. We haven't done, We have the people at the lower end don't get paid enough. The Inner city schools don't graduate half the kids. Uh, Health care, 30 million uninsured, and it's twice as much as the rest of the world. So we have a serious set of problems. And so my view is that's been going on a long time, and we need to fix them. America is exceptional. America has an unbelievable hand, but we need to do something to fix these problems. And, and you know, I tell you, we can, America is, this, is the shine city on the hill. American capitalism, American free enterprise, and free enterprise to me is you can work where you want. The movement of human capital and invested capital is critical. Doesn't mean it doesn't have flaws, and that government and business have to work together to fix those flaws. And I was sitting, and it was a reporter, David, who I was. We were having a dinner at the BRT, and Steve Perlstein of the Washington Post said, "You, know, you guys talk about all the great stuff you're doing. And remember, these big companies, we pay people well. We've got medical, dental, healthcare, training, jobs. We share the wealth. We literally, we take very good care of people and customers." He said, but you guys, you still, this, it's all about show the value. And I got the statement that the BRT had written probably 20 years earlier. And I said, well, that's not how we run the company. And also, I deeply realized, and you obviously are, are brilliant at understanding the American public. The American public hears shareholder value, and they hear rapacious, short-term profit-taking at the expense of customers and employees. They hear, then we say, and all the lawyers say, well, that's your fiduciary responsible according to the courts, which it kind of is. But what they hear there, they were stayed by our lawyers. And I told on that when we changed the statement, I said, don't don't talk to your general counsel. This is us speaking to the American public. We, we worry about the day we come in, which is employees, 
customers, communities, all the time. And and you don't we don't have to say, well, it's all about financial results. If I don't do a good job for customers, I lose. If I don't do a good job for employees, I lose. If I if I'm not a respected community citizen, I'm going to lose. I need to do them all to have long term show the value. Ironically, rapacious short term profit taking is the worst thing you can do for long term show the value. So in that letter, I, what I really try to go through is where can companies first of all companies have made mistakes. I, and I this, so I'm not blaming anyone here, but any one of us, any one of you in that room, and any company can drive by the slums and. South, South Side Chicago or in South Bronx, and I can still build a great company and you can still have a great career. I think it's a huge mistake for people in society to do that. We have to lift up our fellow citizens and we need very targeted, very thoughtful policies to do that. And companies can help be a real important part of that. You've seen these charts and you've studied this. I mean, there is a line of demarcation between World War II and somewhere in the 70s and from the 70s now, during that first period, wages grew in concert with growth, economic growth generally. That started to change. Uh, part of it, uh, and challenge me if I'm wrong about this, because uh, you know I, I may, I'm, I'm sure you may have a different view, but when companies, and this is why people think about rapaciousness, when companies went public, there was the tyranny of the quarterly report. Uh, CEOs were measured and are measured by their performance. You're measured by your performance uh, and uh, and are compensated well for it. In fact, you know, I not to be uh, provocative, but I was just interested in this. I looked back 50 years to see who the most uh, the most highly paid banker in New York was. You could probably guess it was David Rockefeller at Chase. He made a million dollars. It would be about 6.7 million today. You make five times that. Things have changed. Uh, and and so, you know, we're dealing with inequality and you identified in this letter as the fundamental problem we have. Uh, and people identify some of this with that and corporate practices with that. You know, I, I mean, I think it makes a look at compensation, mistakes to look at just compensation of a CEO Compensation of people around the world. I mean, artists, sports athletes, CEOs. The, the if you look at, and I totally agree with you. The growth of the bottom twenty percent incomes the last twenty years has been one percent. The twenty years before that it was eighteen percent, and then the twenty years before that everyone was kind of rising up and stuff like that. Right. And you got to ask yourself what caused that. And it yes, was, that's it, what it, I'm it, asking. Yes, but it wasn't caused by CEO comp. It was caused by half the kids in inner city schools not graduating. It was caused by uh, that the, you, some of those folks, they die younger. It was caused by a healthcare system that costs twice as much. And by great, we have the best doctors, medicine, science, the world, but we do not have the best outcomes. We have too much obesity. Uh, uh, there's too much illness. Uh, so, if, so if you look at the extended problems, I think all that slowed down growth. Even some of our regulations, you know, it takes 10 years. Like when they do infrastructure, I tell them, it, it took 10 years to build a bridge between Staten Island and New Jersey that was failing because of our own, but it wasn't the infrastructure. It was the rules around. It took 10 years to get the 49 permits that they all had, they were all gone sequentially. So, so the, I, I would say those are the things I think, but David, I do think we need targeted things like the earned income tax credit, more childcare, preschool, you know, things which will all improve labor productivity, by the way, you have more people come back to the workforce make labor pay, jobs bring dignity. And yes, I think taxing the wealthy is fine. I mean, so I'm not against that. I think you're not, it's not, 
So if CEOs all cut their comp, that's not going to solve the problem. And so we got to look at what caused it, what we should do about it in a very detailed way. So what I try to do, I mean, when I write this letter, I do a lot of research to try to say, why did that happen? Where was it different? What can we do better next time around? Yeah. I mean, the numbers are, are pretty startling. Uh, uh, you know, in, in 19, uh, for, if you look at 70 now, but right today, uh, 10%, the top 10% uh, uh, own 70% of wealth and the bottom 50%, 1.5. I mean, that is a, the reason I, it worries me, Jamie, and we've talked about this is um, these are the things, it, you know, capitalism and democracy are based on this principle that if you work hard, you can get ahead, that hard work will be rewarded and, and that you're only limited by your own efforts uh, or lack of efforts. That most Americans, they, we used to call it the American dream. Uh, people are losing faith in that. And I agree with you. The American dream is fraying and income inequality is like the fault line. And again, you go. You got to go back. What do you do to fix it? I do think good infrastructure helps. So I talk about paying people more at the low end, just paying them more, just like earning up tax credit, raising minimum wage to, you know, a much higher number. And I also talk about education. So you know, I work through a lot of what schools. Half the kids don't graduate. So CUNY here has five hundred community. The City University of New York. Yes. Five hundred thousand kids. Thirty percent graduate. A lot of minorities. I think a lot of ways they when you graduate you are going to get a certificate for a job. There's a school right across here called Aviation High School. It's a high school, mostly minorities. They travel, some travel up to three or four hours a day. Their parents want them to go. When they graduate, they've also learned how to maintain Cessna aircraft, hydraulics, equipment, you know, engines, electrical systems, et cetera. 95%, $65,000 a year. I mean, that fixes, that we need to do that in every city, in every place, where people have to work with the teachers and make sure this, they get not just certificates, livelihoods, coding. You do 12 weeks of coding. I've been in Wilmington. I've been in Delaware. 12 weeks of coding, $65,000 a year. Kids are graduating some of our state universities. They don't even know that's available to them. You know, and they may, and I don't, look, I love history. If I was going to major in a subject, I'd major in history. But, you know, okay, if I took a couple of coding classes, I might enjoy the $65,000 a year. So, but yeah. so it's education and healthcare too. People are dying younger, keeps them out of the workforce, lowers productivity, lowers all those things. So in my letter, I have 15 things, yes. including very targeted ones for the Latin and black community. I, I want to I talk about all of that. Before I do, I want to just put this in the context of the other thing that you talk about, which is the competition with China, which is a defining struggle uh, of our time. And uh, this, I, I worry about this a lot because the Chinese argument, and they make it all over the world, is the democratic experiment is, is spent. They, they, they can't move fast enough. They're not agile enough. They're too divided. Uh, we are efficient. We know how to manage an economy. Uh, we, are the, we are the model for the 21st century. That is what we're, and they're investing they're investing freely in infrastructure and all uh, many of the things that you've uh, talked about. It, it, shouldn't that be a concern? Yeah. But, but again, for everyone in this audience, like, do a full assessment. You know, China, that's all true. And they've been efficient, but none of food, war, and energy. Okay? They have huge corruption. They, they're very lack of transparency and rule of law. 
Their neighborhood is very complicated. Their, their neighbors are Philippines, Koreas, Japan's, Indonesia, Vietnam, Pakistan, India, and Russia. Now, they're not that happy with China. And China does not have that easier road. They've done all those things well, and they are feeling their oats about our gridlock and can't get things done and racial inequality. So the students in the room should know there's more income inequality in China than there is here, just so you know. I mean, people make these simple statements and all the good facts. What do we have? All the food, war, and energy we need, wonderful neighbors in Mexico and Canada. We haven't had a war once since 1848. We've got the blessings of the founding fathers, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of enterprise, freedom, uh, uh, the, uh, the American dream of opportunity based upon a, you know, we're not tribal and stuff like that. And we've kind of lost away a little bit. And, you know, policies and proceed. the world's gotten faster and complex. You know, you were in government, you, you know better than me how frustrating it is to get certain things done. But I think it's a call to arms, not to arms like, like no, I understand. Uh, military arms. That we, we, I think we should, if it were me, I'd be less afraid about China's success than our failure. Because we, we've jazzed people up. There's, the reason we're, we have problems is with China, trade, or immigration. That's not true. You know, immigration, everyone wants a good immigration policy where DACA can stay and a path to citizenship for law-abiding, tax-paying, undocumented. If that would grow the economy 0.3% a year. As you know, Chuck Schumer and John McCain had a bill that couldn't get through. President Obama tried. President Bush tried. Uh, you know, I, so I, those things are really hurting us. So to me, that's why I focus on. Yeah, no, you know, just, you... Uh... Just, for the, just for the audience, too. Our GDP per person is 65000 if we grow 2% a year in the next 20 years, it'll be 85,000. And we end up with all the good that they're talking about and good demographics. And that's doing a bad job running the economy. If China does a good job running the economy, their GDP in 20 years will still be $35,000 a person. It's not, it's not like we've lost any great thing here. We've got everything. The other one last thing for the people in the audience, autocratic stuff works when you have a small, less sophisticated nation. 100 million people are part of their communist party. There's no developed nation, which they're going to be one day, that doesn't have a much broader people with input to political power. And they have to go through that transformation. They've got to go through a bunch of other transformations. And autocratic stuff doesn't work when the world gets very complicated, like how you allocate capital and people. And uh, so it's not this. But we should look at that as a rallying cry for why we could do a better job here. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You were running through a, a list of, uh, of prescriptions uh, that you write about in your, your letter, uh, major investments in infrastructure and research and development in safety net programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit, Child Tax Credit, uh, immigration reform, rethinking our education system. You just spoke about that uh, to emphasize more technical training that'll prepare young people uh, for jobs, major investments in in depressed communities, historically uh, uh, depressed communities. And we'll talk about that in a second. But Jamie, that sounds a, a hell of a lot like the Biden plan. Uh, I mean, these are all the things that he has been uh, emphasizing. Will Will J.P. Morgan Chase uh, and other business lobbyists be down in Washington uh, lobbying for these investments, or will they be lobbying against the tax the tax uh, increases that have been proposed to to pay for them? 
Yeah, so I, I think I think there's this artificial connection about each do infrastructure and corporate taxes. And so, you know, you can say that, but they're not really directly related to each other. We should do infrastructure right and then figure out how to tax properly. And on both sides, you should talk about things that create growth. We need real growth to help pay for all the things we need to do. I give an example of how we grown properly the last 20 years. We'd have another $4 trillion of GDP. And that would pay for a lot of social safety net, taxes, et cetera. And so and when it comes to policy, the thing that worries me the most about policy, you've seen Steve Ratner write about it now and Larry Summers. And we have to, it's not just the money anymore. It's the effectiveness. So if you have a highway bill, how many roads are you going to build? How much did it cost? How many cars are on it? Is it on time? We've gotten too much of this notion of we're going to throw 80 billion at this and 50 billion at this. If you don't fix the regulation side of infrastructure, you're not going to fix infrastructure. So you're going to see me support very specific things that I think will work and could not support things I think are just a waste of time. And like I said, they go hand in hand. You can't separate all these things sometimes. So, uh, But I do think we need those investments. I've always thought that corporate tax should be competitive, and I'm still convinced you need a competitive tax system to maximize America. I would much prefer to tax. I also give examples there of carrying interest and tax breaks for railroads and sugar, not railroads, uh, racing cars and golf yeah. courses and sugar and ethanol and cotton and corn. And what are we doing as a nation? We should collect the taxes road. We should get rid of all these ridiculous things. And if you've got to raise taxes, do it on the income of the wealthy, like a Buffett type of tax. That will be far more effective in growing the economy than taxing primary capital formation. Are there taxes specific, tax uh, benefits or, or, or tax loopholes, as they're called, specific to banking that, uh, that you would de- defend as a fiduciary matter for your there there but you're not going to believe this there's not one single tax break or anything the banks get banks are probably one of the few people pay pay the full rate the the only thing it looks like a benefit is we buy tax credits for affordable housing but but that's not we're not getting a tax credit we're actually paying someone to do the affordable housing and the tax credits would pays us back with a small interest rate so if they want to get rid of that they get rid of that too but uh but I, I think all these. I mean, if I was, you know, like, I'm not. How, a how do you feel? Leader. Let me interrupt you for a second. How do you feel about what the what Janet Yellen and the president are proposing the the global corporate minimum tax? Because one of the concerns is that very profitable companies shift their shift their uh, profits off se- overseas and and end up paying very few taxes here. So you know, I haven't been through an excruciating detail. I think there are very legitimate complaints about people shifting profits all the place and low tax jurisdictions and stuff like that. But we have a very different tax system than the rest of the world. The rest of the world taxes in their country and not outside the country. We tax in the country and outside the country. And again, when I, my view is when you design the detail, the, and the detail matters. Matter of fact, the detail is all that's going to matter about what's better for the future health of America. You want capital deployed and reinvested in the United States and at the margin. You don't at the margin want to create incentives to send it overseas. You know, just like all the, all of you or all your parents and stuff like that, when they make investments, they're deciding what they like pre-tax and after tax and stuff like that. So I, I think you have to be very careful to design, but it should be fair. There are some very legitimate complaints of countries overseas. There are very legitimate complaints of the American government, uh, but the devil's in the detail. And I haven't gotten into that yet. You're right that, uh, and I think you're right that the, a lot of the frustration that people feel about government today is is gridlock and the inability to get uh, things done. You're sitting there, say you're Joe Biden right now. And the other thing you say is that Republicans and Democrats ought to be able to work together. But if, if one party decides they're just not going to work 
with you. Um, shouldn't you do what he is doing, which is um, making sure that you get stuff done? Won't he ultimately be judged on whether he gets some of the big things that you've talked about done rather than the style points of, 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 of what process he used to get it done? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm of two minds in that one. I like bipartisanship because I think, you know, democracy is compromise. I, yes. I find it unbelievable that so you can't compromise. That's what democracy is. You try to work out yeah. what works for both parties and stuff like that. And I understand, and I, I prefer that. I, my view is when you look back at anything that's done 100% partisan, it just sets, it, we fight about it for the next 20 years. And it's almost unresolved until it gets resolved again. So, so I, I understand he should try everything he can for bipartisan. If they go to totally partisan, you know, then they get to do what they want. The American public, you know, the great thing is we get to vote again. And if they don't like what he did, they can vote him out. I think it's very important. I think the President Biden will be judged a hundred, not 100%, but largely on the competency of the execution of what they said, not that they just pass a bill. So, you know, and you have a lot of people, it's all about passing a big bill and declaring a victory. And that mine is how many schools were built, how many kids got jobs, how many highs were built, did we change the FAA? And that's what we've not been good at, by the way, is the execution of all of these dreams. You know, and so... No, so I'm of two minds. If they can't get it done one way, they're probably going to try the other way. And, and you know, that may have positive or negatives. But if I were them, I'd focus on execution. Even FDR, remember, in World War II, you know, he didn't have the best relation with business. But when that war started, he brought in the CEO of GM and the CEO of uh, a bunch of other companies that you do my defense production board. You do my, you know, this thing. I need to build more airplanes and tanks. And, you know, that and people, and it was great. Everyone worked together. But. Uh, I'm hoping we have that competency now. Steve Ratner, I know a friend of yours, wrote in the paper today, I sent him notes, I thought it was very right, that put people in charge of very specific things to make sure it's done right. Don't find out in three or four years, because you want to really hurt our democracy, you know, have this be a failure. That it was just a boondoggle and wasted money and it didn't work. And then we'll, we'll have another 10 years where the Chinese are laughing at us. Well, Ratner is a uh, reflection of that because he was called in to help uh, run the uh, auto intervention exactly. the auto bailout and it worked uh, you exactly know? so um that that is uh, that is a good example you know you have uh, you write compellingly in this letter and and you've acted on on this uh, uh about the need to uh address uh systemic racism uh, address the wealth gap between white and black americans the typical white family has one-tenth the wealth of the typical the typical black family one-tenth the wealth of a, a typical white family. Uh, and one of the, you know, there, there are a number of initiatives that you've engaged in, and some in cities like Chicago and Detroit. I want you to talk about, A, why you, you are doing that, why that is so important to you. And there's a particular initiative of yours that I think is, 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 is re really deserves some focus, which is the hiring of ex-offenders. But, but talk a little bit about what's motivating you. Yeah, so... You know, we, we started these efforts way before the murder of George Floyd. And, I, and we were kind of the forefront in acknowledgement. I sat in this room going through all of our diversity with Asia, Latinx, LGBT, et cetera. The only one we were not making real progress on was black. And so years ago, we said, no, separate effort, form it separately, get talented people to do it. Um, and then we went to, we did a lot of work in Detroit with Mayor Duggan, who I think is just absolutely outstanding. Uh, and then the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, we just highlighted racial inequality that's been there for hundreds of years. And God knows how much money has been thrown at it. 
And so, but my view is that we all should double down. And I, and I think, by the way, you've seen everyone do that. A lot of white CEOs and people, what are we going to do? So just take Chicago. You know, someone wrote an article there with a little bit of criticism about our mortgages there. We're now at the, so we're going to do 8 billion of more mortgages for black folks. We're going to do 12 billion of affordable housing. We're putting 350 billion into uh, entrepreneur of color funds so we can raise money, help small business with capital and also advice grow their, their businesses to be bigger business, stuff like that. And a lot around education and the second chance. So even in Chicago, I went met with some uh, ex-felons who they want jobs. They don't want to go back. They can't get credit. They can't get a house. They can't get a job. But with training and credit and treat them respectfully, you know, it works. We've hired 2,000 ex-felons last year, uh, and that which is now, I think, 10% of who we hired. And so, but it's at the ground level. We just opened a community branch in the South Side, not far when I think President Obama is going to have his his uh, his library. But we're talking, and the uh, community centers that were part of the community. We hired the community. The people who built and refurbished the thing were from the community, uh, and we're going to convene small businesses and and mothers and folks about how to invest money and how to form a small business, how to make a small business better. And it's at the detail is how many loan officers do you have? in that census track, that black census track in the South Side. How many loan officers do you have in that census track in Detroit? We're going to hire 300 black financial advisors. That's not Detroit, that's nationwide. We realize that for wealth managers, you know, we've got not enough managers. We have to go hire and train them. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to reach out to Howard University and other universities. And so at, and it's, it, I think it's going to work, you know, by a lot of the companies are doing this. This isn't just J.P. Morgan. You make the observation that, uh, you know, black men are five times more likely to go to uh, prison to be incarcerated than, than white men. And you said this is the definition of systemic racism. Tell me what you tell me what you think. Tell me what systemic racism is in your mind and, and how per, and, 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 and how pervasive is it? It's, it's pervasive. And so after World War, after the Civil War, you know, this is at Grant. Uh, when he's president, said that the, the black citizens have the right to full citizenship and to be treated properly, the laws of the land. We had the 40 acres and a mule. That was a form of redress. Never happened. And he actually sent federal troops down, I think even General Sherman, and kicked out a governor of Mississippi, Alabama. And just so you know, I took a trip to the, uh, the Equitable Justice Institute, to Selma, the bridge, and Birmingham. It brings tears to your eyes. What we've done to the black community over hundreds of years. And of course, it went backwards after Grant. And so and it's, it's embedded in where they live, the schools they have, how taxes are done. Uh, it's embedded in healthcare systems. It's embedded everywhere. And the only way you're going to fix it is to attack it at a very detailed level. And so business can do its share. Government obviously is, is critical to doing this right because business can't do it by itself. And, and, uh, and I think it's time to attack it. And, and my own view, and this is one of those things we talk about corporate responsibility, that if we do a good job of this, it's, it's the moral thing to do. It's also better for society and commercially for business because you, ha- you have a better society and a healthier society. And, and um, so I, and we got we to do it right. As you know, the government spent God knows how much money trying to fight this, and it hasn't completely worked either. Yeah. Well, what should government be doing? Well, I would put education as number one. I would put the wages the low end, like tax credit. I would take, you know, I haven't studied as much detail, but all these safety nets that you, that, you know, single mothers with two children to go get 
you know, welfare and SNAP and foods and this thing. They have to go to 10 or 20 different places. Honestly, I would just give them the money, you know, and maybe a few will waste it. So what? The administrative costs, the burdens, give them the money. Most of them are going to take care of their kids. And like I said, the earning of tax credit, you know, give people jobs and dignity. Uh, every inter- if, I, if I was a dictator in New York City schools, every inner city school would say, how, not how many of my kids graduated, how many got a job when they graduated? And not a job, you know, stocking shelves somewhere. Like a job that had a, uh, but that's not terrible because at least it has a future if you work hard. But uh, so I, I just think there's a lot to do that could help with that. Healthcare. I remember going to uh, somewhere in the south side of high school when I was at Bank One. They didn't have sports teams. It was a high school. The outside, you know, had a, a you know a playground, but the, it was broken, so no one used it. And and how do you teach your kids teamwork and sports? And so we should be teaching nutrition and wellness in every high school. And I'm sure we do in Nutria, like you know, in the, in the nice size. So that, that that's why the work's got to be done. I offered to pay. I I. I offered to pay to get not to pay to get to build that playground for them to put lights up to put fences up so kids can play basketball late into the night and the government came back local government it's going to cost two hundred thousand dollars i was like two hundred thousand dollars i've never heard such a thing and i went and did it myself for forty thousand dollars you know there's been a lot of tumult lately because of what major league baseball did what corporations are doing relative to voting rights and there are politicians who've warned corporate companies stay out of politics. A lot of the things that you're talking about, I know it's po- policy, but it leads you into politics. Immigration leads you into politics. Um, you know, infrastructure and how you're going to pay for it leads you into politics. How do you take the posture that you're taking and navigate around politics? Don't you have to sort of engage? So that, you know, that, that is a hard question, but I always try to separate. And the policy and politics relate and I always try to separate what's good for the country. Are we convinced the facts support it versus politics? Like, are you a Democrat or Republican? And so, you know, we obviously when it comes to are you a Democrat or Republican, that's up to the citizens of the country. That's not up to a J.P. Morgan Chase. So we we try to separate. It's getting harder and harder, as you know. And we have a lot of conversations. We talk to a lot of people about and there are a lot of things we're being asked to opine on. We don't know anything. I mean, it's hard to have an opinion when you're uneducated about it. So some we get educated about and say we really can't, and others we we try to get, uh, we just say it's just not our, our expertise. It is harder. I mean, baseball, you know, as soon as they took the position of moving the All-Star game, people start talking about taking their antitrust exemption away, and government has a lot of power. Yeah, and I said there, you see a lot of Democrats have made they moved out too because they're hurting businesses right. there, including a lot of yeah. minority businesses. So they, as you know, these become really complex questions. But, you know, for again, to try to answer them is a good thing. You may not always get an answer, but do the work. Healthcare. You were engaged with uh, Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway in an experiment called Haven. Uh, you uh, and, and it was designed to uh, uh, Atul Gawande, the great uh, medical writer and 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 uh, investigator. Uh, doctor was in charge of it. And the idea was you were going to find answers to healthcare, um, and, and, and it's disbanded. Why, why did it disband and what did you learn? Yeah. So I'll tell you what we, what we were right about and what we were wrong about. So what we write about is it is the most complex perverted system. There's lack of transparency. You should own your medical data. 
Uh, we have some of the best in the world, you know, like doctors, pharma, hospitals, yes, surgeons. Yes. I'm a benefit of that. We have the, the $18,000 a person, which is just, it's some, which is double the rest of the world. So it's becoming a real competitive thing. So we don't have better outcomes. We don't have better, we don't have this uh, obesity, et cetera. So we said, let's look at it from the employee standpoint. We write about that too. We spend $3 billion a year in healthcare. How can we get better health? So it could be wellness programs. It could be what we put in the dining room. Uh, it could be we get them chronic care medicine, telemedicine. How you going to deal with depression? And all that was all right. What we didn't have right is we didn't really need the three of us to do it. In some ways, it actually made it harder. We have, you know, banks have a lot of legal restrictions whenever we do anything that's commercial and stuff like that. So we learned a lot. We're all going to apply it separately. And, you know, stay tuned here. We're, we, we haven't given up this one. We're going to take another crack at it. We, and we've, and we, we've been, I've learned more about healthcare than I ever wanted to. It needs a lot of fixes. Welcome to my world. I spent some years on that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, but um, you know, you, you mentioned how much more American healthcare costs and how much less uh, good the outcomes are uh, relative to uh, other developed nations. You know, one of the things that distinguishes all those other developed nations other than us is that they have national health care systems. Um, and what, what does that tell you? Well, you know, first of all, some have much cheaper, also much worse. So you got to be very careful. And then they have to separate the single payer from the single buyer and all that kind of stuff. You know, I'm, I, I don't know if we're ever going to go to make a big change here. You know, I would have a private system, but you can ha- still have a single buyer. You have that with Medicare and Medicaid, yes. effectively. And actually, some of that works quite well. There are a lot of lessons to be learned from what works well in that part. But uh, but some of those things, I, I think some of those things, are, we're way beyond that in terms of the lack of transparency, surprise billing, lack of wellness. I mean, for the first time in a, in the hundred, not even hundred years, maybe hundreds of years, life expectancy is going down in this country. Yes. And, you know, it's 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 not just COVID. It's opioids. It's obesity. Uh, yeah. We we have a long way to go, and I'm open minded to any fix about how we can get that fixed. We we got to do a better job here. But you're right. You know one of one of the one of the challenges that we had is it is such a kind of Rube Goldberg contraption of the American healthcare system, and people feel wedded to their employee, the, uh, their employer uh, provided healthcare, and they don't want you know you you know the national debates that we've. See, but the reality is um, that if you're sick, it doesn't particularly work very well. It doesn't work well um, uh, sometimes. It doesn't work well in terms, particularly in terms of prevention, which is what you're uh, talking about. Um, and um, so it's it's really it's really challenging. And um, I, you know, I think the Affordable Care Act made some uh, advances, but we got a lot of work to do. Uh, and and I do think we should look at what other countries uh, are doing and uh, look at best practices. Uh, talking about healthcare, I want to talk about your health um, because you've had a couple of health challenges in in recent years. You had a battle with throat cancer in the in the the two thousand teens, and um, and you last year I think we were actually going to do something together, and you had a, a heart issue, um, and. You know, just as I asked you about what the challenge uh, was uh, of getting over getting fired, um, what happened? What did? How did it impact you in terms of sort of staring at your own mortality? Yes, that's exactly what it was. Staring at my mortality. 
you know, I think, you know, it, it didn't have a lot. I love what I do. I, I tell everyone, you got to take care of your mind, your body, your spirit, your soul, your friends. Your and I try to do that. You know, maybe I, I'm not, obviously not perfect uh, and things like that. But I think the thing that, and, and people say somehow after these disasters I had that I'm going to want to smell the flowers and play golf. I'm not going to go play golf. I'm not going to smell the flowers. I want, I'm a patriot. I want to get stuff done. I'm going to, when I'm done with this, I'm going to be teaching and writing and, you know, investing in industry stuff and going on some interesting boards, including a not-for-profit, things that I don't do a lot of today and stuff like that. The, the, the biggest lesson to me was I know I'm mortal. I mean, everyone that's listening to this thing knows they're going to die. You read about it. There's no alternative. You all know it. I know it better than you. So I don't assume that my life's going to go on forever. I know it can end just like that. And so it makes you think a little bit differently about life, like, like live deliberately, take care of yourself deliberately. You know, I know people who, they, we had a, a great banker who died, and he used to write, every time he did something, it's almost like the, he knew it might be his last conversation. His father died when, his, when he was very young, and he looked, he looked at it that way. And, and uh, so just, I think just be very deliberate what you're doing, be very thoughtful about it. Um, you don't want to look back with a lot of regrets. You know, we're all going to have some regrets. We've all made mistakes. But, you know, I was being wheeled into the operating room last time. I thought it was 50-50. But I didn't, with, in terms of my kids, my wife, my country, my company, I thought I left everything in as good shape as I could do. I wasn't sitting there saying I missed something. I didn't miss. I don't think I missed something. There may be one or two things. but <laughs> Listen, it's, it's so good to be with you, Jamie Dimon. Appreciate the time. Appreciate these initiatives that you talked about. Everybody should read the letter. It's really worth, it's really worth reading. But uh, thanks so much for being here. David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.